So grab your Bible and open it to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We're beginning our third session in the book of Corinthians, and I'm excited to talk about some things this morning. Um, when I was in Bible college, one of the things that uh, I loved to do was grab some of the students that I was in relationship with that might be um, far from home and take them home with me to my house on special occasions. My roommate was from uh, Bremerton, Washington, and I went to school in Southern California, so he was really far from home. And whenever holidays came around, he was never really able to spend holidays with his family, and sometimes he would just be stuck in the dorms, and so I would take him home with me. His name was Cecil, and uh, he was a great guy, really funny and outgoing and just a joy to be around. And um, so I brought Cecil home with me, and this was the first time I brought him home. And uh, him and my dad, man, they just, they just hit it off. I mean, they were having fun together. They were joking together. Um, Cecil was pretty sarcastic, and so he was sarcastic with my dad, and just, they just loved that, just the you know, banter and the verbal banter and um, things like that. So it was just really fun and having a great time, and we were there a couple days before Thanksgiving, and then Thanksgiving came around, and we sat down at the table, and for whatever reason that day, uh, Cecil had wore his hat to the table. And Cecil sat down to the left of my dad, and right as he sat down, my dad, by the way, I'm the smallest in my family, my dad is 6'6", uh, six, six, and a large man, so I'm the shrimpy. My brother's 6'9", so you can... You get it, I'm the shrimp. And uh, my dad reaches over with his hand and just whack! Hits Cecil's hat right in the bill and the hat goes flying. And my dad says, Cecil, there's no hats at my table. See, there was a lot of things in my home, and I guess were probably true in your home, that my parents wanted me to respect. And there were certain things that, especially my dad, taught my brother and I to respect. One of those things was he didn't want us to wear hats at the table. He also wanted us to hold our silverware correctly. <laughs> and he wanted us to um, stand when the flag was presented anywhere and put our hand over our heart. He wanted us to open doors for older people. He wanted us to give our chair to somebody elderly if they were in the room. He taught us these different things that were respectful in his life, and he wanted us to do the same. In chapters 11, 12, 13, and 14, the Apostle Paul is going to put on his dad hat. Uh-oh is correct. His dad hat is large and in charge, and he is going to give some serious challenges to the Corinthian church. He's going to get very serious because, and very stern at times because the Corinthian church had fallen into a place of great disrespect for God and for one another. And in that place where they were living and they were at and where their hearts were at and their minds were thinking and their actions were portraying, because they were not respecting the Lord and the Lord's Supper and because they were not respecting one another, the gospel was being hindered. Jesus Christ was being diminished. And the, the witness that they were becoming in the city was not appropriate at all. And so Paul does some stern teaching in this section because he wants us to respect the Lord and to respect one another. Now, why does this matter? Why is this important? <laughs> well, because one of the biggest challenges you and I often face is our own selfishness, isn't it? Our own narcissism, our own desire to say, I want this for me, and I'm going to ignore what Jesus wants for me and what's best for me. And sometimes we can do that, and in that place, our selfishness begins to show disrespect for the Lord, disrespect for one another, and disrespect for Jesus himself. 
And Paul's going to over and over again say, that's unacceptable for his people. The gospel is also, as we know, it's the opposite of selfishness. The message of the gospel of Jesus Christ is the opposite of selfish because God himself, in such a selfless way, left heaven, came to earth, and died on a cross for us. The most selfless act we have ever seen on our planet. So Paul's going to encourage the Corinthians to show respect in two categories in chapter 11. One, to show respect for God's design in relationships between man and woman and how that works out in public and to show respect for Jesus during communion. Now, before we jump in, I also want to point out something important. Paul is switching gears here a little bit to talk mostly about their public meetings. Before, he had talked a little bit about what they did in public, but it was more personal. It was their own personal heart. Now he's going to begin to talk about what you do when you gather together, like we are today and like you are live. What we do together as the body of Christ in our meetings is very, very important. And what we do during that time and how we represent Jesus during that time and the respectfulness that we show during those special times where we meet together is important and respect, needs to be respectful to the Lord and to one another. And so under that umbrella, we have chapters 11 through 14 and a little bit into 15. Chapter 11, verse 2 through 16, Paul's going to talk about the respect for God's design in relationships. So I'd like us to start there. I'm, I'm not going to spend the bulk of my time in this section uh, because the, the second half of the chapter is really one where I want to spend a lot more time because it's talking about the Lord's Supper. But let's start in verse 2. He says, I praise you for remembering me in everything and for holding to the traditions just as I pass them on to you. Now, let me talk about something really quick. Paul's going to talk about some traditions and some customs in verses 2 through 16. So he's not going to give as strong as a command. And it's interesting that he's even talking about it at all because he doesn't really talk about traditions and customs in many other places. But there was a tradition and a custom that they apparently were not abiding by. And it was not allowing the, the design that God had in relationships to be heightened. Um, and so we move on to verse 3. But I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It is the same as having her head shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, she might as well have her hair cut off. But if it is a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, then she should cover her head. A man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man did not come from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. It is for this reason that a man, that a woman, sorry, and let me, I'm going to back up because this is important. It is for this reason that a woman ought to have authority over her own head because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as woman came from man, so also man is born of woman, but everything comes from God. Now, you may read this and go, man, this is kind of confusing. Anybody else like me? right? Like what in the world is he talking about? Because this doesn't make any sense in the modern world today. Well, here's what God's talking, what Paul's talking about. Paul's talking about God's design in relationship. The, the way God designed relationships was this way. God created man first, male. And then he created woman second. But it, remember, woman came out of man, right? God took a rib out of man and created woman and then presented, presented woman to man 
and started this amazing relationship that we now have. The Corinthian church had begun to kind of manipulate that a little bit. And here's what most theologians believe. It has to do mostly with verse 10. Let's look at it just for a second, and you'll probably need some help just like I do. Verse 10 says, It is for this reason that a woman ought to have authority over her own head because of the angels. Now, let me just uh, present a couple things that I think are important. Number one, most people in the first century didn't believe women had any authority over their own head. The gospel is changing that. The gospel is saying, no, we believe women do have authority over their own head, over their own body, over their own life. But then it's interesting, he adds this little phrase, because of the angels. And you think, what in the world does an angel have to do with a woman's authority on earth? It's this. The Corinthian church, most likely, this is our best theological guess, most likely because the apostle Paul was encouraging so much that the church be unified in oneness, that they began to have a philosophy that man and woman on earth were more like the angels. In other words, they were genderless. The angels are genderless. And because of our unity, we want to be so unified that we become kind of like genderless. And Paul is saying, no, let me correct that. There is male and there is female. And that's how God designed it. And God, remember, God created man, and then he took uh, woman out of man, and that's the created God design of relationships. And so Paul's bringing order back to that. But in that conversation, Paul says, I, I want women to have something that sets them apart so that you know that they have their own authority and so that you know the difference between male and female and man and woman so that the relationship that God designed can flourish and grow and thrive. And what I want women to do publicly is have a covering. Now, this is where it gets challenging because we can go round and round about what that covering actually is because Paul doesn't actually describe it. Now, Apparently, and most likely, the people in Corinth in the first century understood it perfectly. But we don't today. Here's a couple thoughts. One, it could be an actual garment that Paul wanted a woman to wear on her head so that she was set apart from male. It could be that. It could also be her hair. Did you notice how Paul was actually talking about her hair? And length of hair and all of that. So it could be that the covering meant her actual hair and not to shave it off because some of the women in Corinth were apparently shaving their heads. And there's a possible thought process that some of the women that were in prostitution shaved their head. And Paul didn't want that to be known or seen in the church as well. Or third, it could be that the covering was just that they were covered by the authority of their husband, or if they were single, by the authority of the pastoral leadership in the church. Could be any of those three. All of them make sense, but all of them have their own different things where maybe they don't make sense. So we may not completely understand exactly what the covering is, but here's what we do know. Verse 3 says, Every woman, or but I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. And then verse 5, But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. So here's what we know. And here's the crux of the entire section, and here's where I want us to just camp for a minute. The crux of the entire section is in regards to what a woman does in public meetings in the church. Where, Len, let me point this out in particular, where men are present. In regards, specifically, to when a woman publicly prays 
or prophesies. Now, let me um, point out the obvious, but when you are in public and you pray publicly or you prophesy publicly, the obvious thing that you have to do is use the words that come out of your mouth. It's a verbal gift. You'll understand why I make that point in just a minute. What Paul is saying is very important, and here's why. The church in the first century was doing something no one else in the modern world was doing at the time, and that was the church culture was changing. The church was affirming women as important. The church was allowing women to have participation in public meetings where they did not have participation in any other, other uh, public meetings or public government. It was extremely rare. It was not never, it's not like it never happened, but it was extremely rare. Normally, women and men were separate in public meetings and they were not together. So here, Paul is encouraging women to use their spiritual gift, to use a verbal gift of prayer or prophecy in a public meeting that included men. And here, men and women are in the same room together, and so there are becoming some challenges with women not only being in the same room, but now they're being allowed to participate, and this is such a joy for them. But there needs to be some direction. Now, I want us to notice something very important in this section of verses. I want you to notice what Paul is saying, but I also want you to notice what Paul is not saying. I want you to notice that Paul is encouraging women, that Paul is announcing that and encouraging women to have a covering when she prays or prophesies. So here's what Paul is saying. Women... Ladies, when you pray, when you prophesy in our public gatherings where we're all together, I want you to wear a covering. That's what Paul is saying. Now hear me. Here's what Paul is not saying. Paul is not saying, I want women to be silent. Interesting. Now this is very interesting and let me point out why. Right here, in chapter 11, Paul encourages women to pray. He encourages them to prophesy. He only asks them to wear a covering. He does not tell them to be silent. He does not tell them to be quiet. Why not? Well, Pastor Mark, where are you going? Here's where I'm going. In a couple weeks, we're going to get to chapter 14. And in chapter 14, we have probably what is one of the most controversial verses in all of the New Testament, where it says that women should be silent in the church. So here's my question. Paul, why in chapter 11 are you saying women can pray and prophesy publicly? And in chapter 14, you tell women to be silent. Why the contradiction or what looks like a contradiction? Here's the challenge for us moving forward, right? Because we believe in women in ministry. We believe that women are allowed to pray and prophesy. We believe, like the New Testament says, that in the body of Christ there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. We're all one in Christ. So that challenges our theological approach to chapter 14. It challenges our theological understanding of the verse that says women should be silent because it would only make sense that right here in chapter 11, if he really meant for women to be silent, that he would have said it here as well. But he did not. Now, I'm going to leave you hanging on a string. Because in a couple weeks, we're going to get to chapter 14, and I'm going to explain to you what we believe and what we think was going on in chapter 14. And why Paul there tells some women to be silent, but here... He encourages them to pray and prophesy in public. So what Paul is trying to help us to understand is respect for God's design in relationship. Now, the second issue the church in Corinth was having was respect for Jesus during communion or the Lord's Supper. 
they were having trouble with respect. Now let's look at how Paul begins this, and we'll notice that his very large dad hat is on. Look at verse 17 with me. In the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. Ouch. Ouch. Now, this verse probably is encompassing all of the direction that he's going to give from chapter 11 all the way through chapter 14. And what he's going to say is all of the things that are happening in the church that you are doing in the church, communion, the way you use your spiritual gifts, the way you speak in tongues, the way you prophesy, the way you are out of control in your services, the way you don't love one another, chapter 13, the chapter about love. The way that you are disrespecting the Lord and each other, you do more harm to the gospel than good. And he's going to give them direction over and over again. In fact, this is a very challenging statement. Because when they were meeting as a church, they were doing more harm to the gospel than help. Now, this is an indication of the great dysfunction that was taking place in the church in Corinth. Paul doesn't address every church like this. Have you noticed? He doesn't address the Galatians like this. He doesn't address the Philippians church like this or the church in Ephesus or the church in Colossae. He just addresses the church in Colossians, or in, sorry, in Corinth like this because they had gotten to a place that was not good. Before we move on and look at what the Corinthians were doing with the Lord's Supper, I'd like to ask us, a personal question because I think we need to ask the same question that Paul is addressing here in chapter 11 to the Corinthians. And let's ask it of ourselves before we move on and think that the Corinthians are such awful Christians. Let's ask the same question of us today. Are there things we do today that do more harm than good? Is it possible that there are things we do today in the modern church that hinder people from seeing Jesus in us? Is it possible? Let me just give a couple, maybe, maybe logical, but maybe some things that we might have seen that might be making it hard for people to see Jesus. How about this one? When we argue as the church, not just Cheney Faith Center, but let's say the American church, when the American church argues about whether to wear a mask or not, and all we do is argue about a mask, do people see Jesus? Maybe not. When we get mad at church leaders for the way that they are leading during a pandemic in which they have never led during their lifetime before, do we do more harm or good? When we argue about politics in the church, do we do more harm or good? Do people see Jesus when we're political or do they see a candidate when they're political? We need to think about that. When we won't forgive someone for something they said or did. When we gossip about someone in the church, when we paint Christians in a bad light on social media, whether or not they're doing bad things or not is not the issue. Because some do, I recognize that. I'm a Christian, I've done bad things before. Anybody else ever done it? Aren't you glad that your friend didn't blast it all over social media? But when we make fun of other Christians on social media or paint them in a bad light, I'm not so sure people see Jesus in that. When we say with our words that we're a Christian, but our actions say the opposite. When we won't attend a relational environment simply because we don't like someone in the group. I don't think people see Jesus. I think they just see selfishness. And that's exactly what was happening in Corinth. Look at it with me. Verses 18 through 34. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church... There are divisions among you, and to some extent, I believe it. No doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. 
So then when you come together, it is not the Lord's supper you eat. For when you are eating, some of you go ahead and act like the cookie monster. Here's what Paul says. Some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. I'll talk about that in a minute. As a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? The poor. What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this manner matter. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. That is why many among you are weak and sick, and number of you have fallen asleep. But if you were more discerning with regard to yourselves, ourselves, we would not come under such judgment. Nevertheless, when we are judged in this way by the Lord, we are being disciplined, so that we will not be finally condemned with the world. So then, my brothers and sisters, when you gather to eat, you should all eat together. Anyone who is hungry should eat something at home so that when you meet together, it may not result in judgment. And when I come, I will give further instruction. Now, it's pretty easy to see that Paul's upset, right? It's pretty easy to see that he's put his dad hat on and he is upset about the disrespect that is being done towards Jesus and towards others in the room. In particular, the poor. Now, there's some specific actions that he's upset about. He's upset about the division. He's upset about the lack of unity that is taking place specifically with what he calls private suppers. He's upset about the humiliation that they are giving towards the poor in their midst. And he's upset about them taking communion in an unworthy manner. Now let's look at this a little bit more intently and specifically. I want you to think about something and just put, a, put something in your mind and think about something with me. In the first century, homes were very different than they are in suburban America or high-rises or anything. Homes were built in a very specific way. They were built in a courtyard structure. So in your home, you would have, if you were wealthy anyway, you would have uh, a piece of land, and maybe it was an acre, or maybe a couple more, and you would have a large courtyard in the middle of your home. Then you would normally have a gate in front of your house, or maybe your house was right on the street. You would have houses built on the street and a large entrance gate, but then your homes would just continue to get built as the family grew in kind of what would be a circular fashion. It would just be built around this courtyard. So you just keep adding on to your homes as kids came to live with you. Doesn't that sound great, grandmas? That your family and your daughters were just right there with you. And so all the grandkids were around. So the family, as the family got larger, the compound just got larger, okay? Around that courtyard. And so there would be houses around there, individual houses for individual homes or for individual families. But then there would, a lot of times, be a large dining area a large dining room that was built and covered in that courtyard space. And here's how the New Testament church began to meet. Most likely, wealthy individuals would house the church on those days that they met together. And the church would meet in that courtyard. They would gather together in that courtyard. Wealthy, poor, 
different races, different genders, everyone together in this courtyard learning about Jesus. But it's all brand new, right? And all of this is brand new. There's no history, and so they're rewriting what it means to gather together as the people of God. But when it came time to eat the supper, the Lord's Supper, here's what was happening. The wealthy would get up and dismiss themselves and go to a private supper and have a dinner over here and apparently eat to their full like Cookie Monster, like Elsa said, that was happening, and getting drunk. And so what were they creating in this environment? The haves and the have-nots. And Paul says, that's despicable. That's not what the body of Christ is about, the haves and the have-nots. We're inclusive of everyone, every race, male and female, rich, poor, the gospel of Jesus Christ is for everyone. And now when people come into your meeting, you're saying what? The gospel is for us, the haves. You have nots. You can just have the leftovers if there's any left at all. And Paul says, this is horrible. How could you do such a thing? How could you humiliate the poor among you? who are suffering for Christ, and most likely the ones that are being tortured in public in the name of Christ, while you hide behind your wealth and separate yourself from them. Paul says, that is not what the church is meant to be. See, the Corinthians' problem was not their failure to gather. It was their failure to be God's new people as they gathered. Because when they gathered together, there was supposed to be perfect unity. And so in this moment, Paul is declaring to them, I need you to be respectful of the Lord's Supper and be respectful of one another. Now I'd like us to look at something because Paul ans Paul's answer to their selfish problem was twofold. One, to remind them how the Lord's Supper is meant to be taken and why they take it. And then second, to encourage them to eat together. This is Paul's answer to their problem. And so I'd like us to look at it in depth for the next couple minutes. Look at what Paul says about the Lord's Supper starting in verse 23. In verse 23, I want us to look at a couple phrases. The first phrase I want us to look at is this. He said, The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. I want us to look at that phrase, on the night he was betrayed. Now the Apostle Paul and Luke add this phrase to the communion moment. And here's what I think is important for us to remember. The first communion is the night that Jesus was betrayed. He was betrayed by Judas, and later in the Garden of Gethsemane was betrayed by all of the disciples. But here's what I think is important for you and me. Jesus knew that. He knew that he was going to be betrayed. Guess what else Jesus knows? He also knows that you and I today, in 2020, betray him as well. But that the cross and the bread is for those that betray him. The bread and the cup is for people that are not perfect. It's for people that mess up. It's for people that don't have it all together. It's for people that make mistakes and for people that are failing and for people that are having a really crappy year and a really crappy life right now. That's what the cross is for. That's what the resurrection is for. And every time we celebrate with the bread and the cup, it's a reminder that Jesus sees our betrayal, he sees our sin, he sees our mistakes, and he loves us anyway. The next phrase I want you to see is this one. And when he had given thanks... 
he had given thanks. Now this one astounds me. Jesus knows exactly what he is heading to. He knows exactly what's going to happen in the next 24 hours. And he starts by giving thanks. He knows over the next 24 hours that all of his friends are going to betray him. Well, maybe except for John and some very courageous women. All the men left. (laughs) The only people that were at the cross were John and his mom and a couple other women. So mostly everyone has betrayed him. He knows he's going to be mocked. He's going to be verbally abused. He's going to be punched. He's going to be flogged. He's going to have a horrible walk of shame with the cross through the town that says, this man is horrible. He knows he's going to be crucified and uh, die one of the most horrible deaths that we have ever invented to have towards one another as humans. He knows all of that. And what does he start with? Thanks. Here's what Jesus knows. That really, really good things can come out of really, really bad things. He knows that. Secondly, Jesus knows this. Jesus knows. And he is fully aware that what he is about to do will bring about our salvation. And he's willing to participate in it. Then he says, this is my body. The bread represents the body. It reminds us that Jesus had a human body. This is not some sort of metaphysical, weird, spiritual thing. Jesus actually came in human form. He had a body and his body was nailed to the cross for our forgiveness. Now the next phrase is one of my favorites. Which is for you. Which is for you. Jesus did this for you. He did this for me. He went through the torture, through the pain, through the cross, through the resurrection. He went through all of that for you. Because he loves you. Because it's his joy to be in relationship with you. Here's what I want you to hear this morning. If you think, I want to talk to some of you watching live too right now. If you think that there's something you've done that is too great of a mistake for Jesus to love you, can I lovingly tell you, you're wrong. You're wrong. Because Jesus died for you. If you were the only one on the planet, he'd have died for you. Now, that would have been horrible because that would have meant you'd have had to nail him to the cross. But guess what? We all did that anyway. Jesus said, this is my body, and it's for you. Then he took the cup, and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Now, this is great. Jesus is saying, I'm starting a new covenant. I'm starting something completely new. You know the Passover meal. And the Passover meal represented that that I delivered you from slavery. Well, guess what? I'm going to do it again. I'm going to deliver you from the slavery to your sin, to your selfishness, to your narcissism. I'm going to deliver you from it on the cross. And the new covenant is this. The new covenant is in my blood. Now that the disciples in the room would have completely understood that. Because as Jesus is saying, I'm going to start a new covenant, what they have in their mind is the old covenant. They know the old covenant. And the old covenant is that I have to take a lamb, a perfect lamb, without defect, no broken bones, no broken anything, and I have to take that perfect lamb and I have to sacrifice it on the altar. And the priest takes that lamb, puts my hands on the head, his hands on the head, and he cuts the throat. And the blood comes out, 
And he puts that animal on the altar, and the blood's there, and the life of the animal is now gone. That perfect lamb dies in my place. And as it burns on the altar, it takes the place of my sin. And Jesus is saying, I'm starting a new covenant. You know me as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Remember, that's how John the Baptist announced him. There's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. For you. So Jesus says, I'm starting a new covenant. I'm going to go to the cross. My body will be there. My blood will come out of my body and it will be what you need for forgiveness. And by the way, this is, this is why it's important when the soldiers came around to break their legs, Jesus was deceased. So he was never broken. He was perfect in every way so that he could be the sacrifice for our sin. Now lastly, Paul says this. Do this in remembrance of me. This needs to become your practice as the people of God from this moment until I return. Do this in remembrance of me. And then verse 26. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death. And then this phrase, until he comes. Folks, he's coming back. So from the time he died on the cross till he comes back, you and I are commanded to do something extremely, extremely reverent, respectful, and important. And I'd like us to do it one more time this morning. So would you take your bread and your cup? And here's what I'd like us to do. I'd like us to do what Paul asks us to do. And that is I'd like us to examine our hearts. And Paul says this, examine your heart according to the body of Christ. And that means this. As we pause and pray, I want you to examine where you're at in regards to Jesus, how are you doing with him? But second, and this is really important, how are you doing with each other? Is there someone at Cheney Faith Center that you're mad at? Is there another Christian that you just don't want to talk to, don't want to see, don't want to be in relationship with? Paul would say this, when you and I harbor bitterness and unforgiveness towards him or someone else, and we come to this table where we are supposed to remember that Jesus died for us and forgave us all our sins, but we're not willing to forgive somebody else the sin that they've done towards us, then in that, in that way, we take the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. We participate of such a wonderful thing in an unworthy way because we are unworthy to say, I will let Jesus help me forgive. I will let Jesus help me be right with my brothers and sisters. And so this morning, if there's something going on between you and someone else, I'm going to ask you to do something and that is, I'm going to ask you to ask the Lord to forgive you. But most importantly, once you're done taking communion and you leave this room, you need to go talk to that person. And you need to go make it right. And you need to let Jesus be exalted in that relationship. And you need to let Jesus be in the middle of that and let the Holy Spirit do a powerful work of healing as you take the first step to say, I acknowledge that I need Jesus to be at the center of this relationship, no matter how hard it's been.
and no matter what's been done, I can forgive you just like Jesus forgave me, even though it's hard. So I'd like us to pause just for a minute and let's just talk to Jesus, get our hearts right, make sure that we're not doing this in some sort of unworthy manner. And then we'll partake together. So I'm going to let us pause and pray. Pray that you're letting the Lord just continue to do a good work in you. While you do, I want, I want to read a prayer to you. This is becoming one of my favorite little books. It's called The Valley of Vision, and it's a book of old Puritan prayers. And they're just astounding. This prayer is about the Lord's Supper, and I want to read it to us. I'm, I'm going to change just a tiny bit of it because it's very old English, and Sometimes a little bit hard to understand, but um, could you just sit and listen to the importance of the Lord's Supper? God of all good, I bless thee. For the means of grace, teach me to see in them thy loving purposes and the joy and strength of my soul. Thou hast prepared for me a feast, and though I am unworthy to sit down as a guest, I wholly rest on the mercies of Jesus and hide myself beneath his righteousness. When I hear his tender invitation and see his wondrous grace, I cannot hesitate but must come to you in love. By your spirit, make my faith alive so that I can rightly discern and spiritually apprehend my Savior. While I gaze upon the emblems of my Savior's death, the bread and the cup, may I ponder why he died and hear him say, I gave my life to purchase yours, presented myself an offering to forgive your sin, shed my blood to blot out your guilt, opened my side to make you clean, Endured your curses to set you free. Bore your condemnation to satisfy divine justice. Oh, may I rightly grasp the breadth and length and height of his design. Draw near, obey, extend the hand, take the bread, receive the cup, eat and drink. Testify before all men that I do for myself gladly in faith, reverence, and love receive my Lord to be my life, my strength, my nourishment, my joy, and my delight. In the supper, I remember his eternal love, his boundless grace, infinite compassion, agony, cross, redemption, and receive assurance of pardon, adoption, life, and future glory. As the outward elements nourish my body, so may thy indwelling spirit invigorate my soul until that day when I hunger and thirst no more.
and sit with Jesus at his heavenly feast. Jesus, we thank you for this bread. We thank you for this cup. We do this in remembrance of you because there is nothing in our lives more important to remember. Forgive us our sin and make us right with you. And help us never to forget, take for granted, or disrespect the bread and the cup that proclaim your death until you come. partake together. Isn't God good? Amen. <laughs> the most important thing in our lives to constantly remember is the cross and the resurrection. And I hope that from this point on in your walk and in your faith, every time you take communion, you see it this way. Yeah. You see it with overwhelming importance and reverence and respect for the Lord. But most importantly, as Paul says, that our relationships in the body of Christ are extremely important. And that every time we take communion, it's an opportunity for us to not only make our relationship right with Him, but make our relationships right with one another. Because that's why Jesus died for our vertical relationship with God, but also for our horizontal relationships with mankind. And God wants both of them to be right. So when you take communion from now on, would you also remember not only of the importance of Jesus, but are your relationships right? Is there somebody you need to apologize to? Is there someone you need to get things right with? And if that means you have to get up before you even take communion and go find someone at their house, do it. Because the most important thing is that we're right with one another so that Jesus can be seen in us and in our relationships until he comes. Thanks for coming. Thanks for being here live. Thanks for watching us later during the week. Always remember, Jesus loves you very much. So do Kate and I. Have a great week.